Good afternoon and welcome to Lunch Break Live with Tea Party Patriots Action. I'm Bill Pascoe, Tea Party Patriots Bannon, Washington, and I will be your host slash MC today. Uh, let's get right into it. But before we do, I'm going to give you just a teaser on this week's call to action. Uh, we're going to talk about Title 42. Uh, I'm going to explain that in the body of the Washington report. Title 42 is the public health authority that the Biden administration has been using after the Trump administration. Uh, that allows U.S. border authorities to send people that they catch coming across the border illegally. It allows them uh, to send them back before they have to be processed for an asylum request. Uh, they can be sent back across the border. We've used it 1.7 million times in the last year, according to the Biden administration. Um, they're going to bring an end to that uh, in several weeks at the end of May, May 23rd. And we'd like you to call your congressman and urge them to get in touch with the Biden White House and say, don't end Title 42, for goodness sake. Uh, there's one script if you're calling a Republican. There's a second script if you're calling a Democrat. Uh, please go to TeaPartyPatriots.org forward slash take action to see that call to action later on this afternoon. Uh, let's get right to the Washington report. The House and Senate both return today. They'll both stay in session through Thursday, and then they're going to be gone for two weeks for the Easter recess. So there's a lot lined up this week. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Monday. They voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed five more bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, they took up and passed seven more bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 3617. That's the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act of 2022, also known as the MORE Act and H.R. 6833, the Affordable Insulin Now Act. Late on Thursday, the House passed the Affordable Insulin Now Act. On Friday, the House took up H.R. 3617, the Moore Act, considering three amendments, two of which were adopted. Then the House passed the amended legislation by a vote of 220 to 204. Only three Republicans voted in favor of this bill, and I don't see much enthusiasm for this legislation among Senate Republicans, so I'm not terribly worried the bill is going to even make cloture on the other side of the Capitol dome. Then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider four bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, tomorrow, the House will consider eight bills under suspension. On Wednesday, the House will consider another two bills under suspension. On Wednesday or Thursday, the House will also consider a resolution recommending that the House of Representatives find Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino Jr., both of whom are former senior aides to President Trump, in contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. The House will also vote on H.R. 3807, the Relief for Restaurants and Other Hard-Hit Small Businesses Act of 2022. Long name, $55 billion in funding. And if they can come to agreement and pass it first through the Senate, the House may take up a COVID funding emergency supplemental appropriations bill. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the Schumer Amendment numbered 5002. That was the substitute amendment for the China Competitiveness Bill. Then the Senate voted to adopt the newer version of the bill so it could be sent back to the House and the two bodies could set up an old-fashioned conference committee. Also, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed Christy Goldsmith Romero, 
Kristen N. Johnson, Summer Christine Mersinger, and Carolyn D. Pham to be commissioners of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. On Tuesday, the Senate voted by 50 to 49 to discharge the nomination of Lisa Donnell Cook to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System from the Banking Committee. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Nanny A. Coloretti to be Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget and C.S. Elliott Kang to be Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. Then the Senate voted to confirm both of them to those positions. In addition, by voice vote, the Senate also confirmed Lisa A. Carty to be U.S. Representative to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations, Mallory A. Stewart to be Assistant Secretary of State for Verification and Compliance, Laura S. H. Holgate to be U.S. Representative to the International Atomic Energy Commission, I'm sorry, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and Christopher Williamson to be Assistant Secretary of State for Mine, boy, Assistant Secretary for Mine Safety and Health at the Department of Labor. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to discharge the nomination of Alvaro M. Bedoya to be a Federal Trade Commissioner from the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Judith Del Zappo Pryor to be the first vice president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States and January Contreras to be assistant secretary for family support at the Department of Health and Human Services. Then something happened that hasn't happened previously in the 117th Congress, a presidential nomination failed on the floor of the United States Senate. Specifically, David Wheel's nomination to serve as administrator of the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor failed to win cloture because three Democrat senators, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, voted against invoking cloture, while all the Republicans also held firm against cloture. Then the Senate invoked cloture on the nomination of Susan Sweet Grundman to be a member of the Federal Labor Relations Authority and on the nominations of Kathy Ann Harris to be both a member of and the chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Sarah Elizabeth Garotti to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Georgia and Georgette Kastner to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate is expected to proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to discharge from the Judiciary Committee the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. If, as we have every reason to believe, the Senate moves to consider the nomination of Judge Jackson, then the schedule for this week would look like this, always subject to change. On Monday, the Senate would convene and then bring up the motion to discharge her nomination from the Judiciary Committee. There would be four hours of debate, evenly split between the two parties, and then the Senate would vote by a simple majority to discharge the nomination, with Vice President Harris in the chair to break a tie if necessary. On Tuesday, Majority Leader Schumer would file cloture on the nomination. Wednesday would be the intervening day required for a cloture motion. On Thursday, the Senate would vote to invoke cloture and end debate on the nomination. And then, based on whether or not he can get a time agreement, and given that the Easter recess will be beckoning those senators, I'll bet he can get a time agreement. The vote on final passage of the confirmation will take place either Thursday, if he can get a time agreement, or Friday, if there is no time agreement. Now to COVID mask mandates, Chapter 13. On Tuesday of last week, 21 states filed suit against the Biden administration, demanding an immediate end to the federal transportation mask mandate. Quote, 
Faced with a government that displays outright disdain for the limits of its power, especially when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, plaintiffs seek vacator of that mask mandate and a permanent injunction against its enforcement, says the suit. Defendants are the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Transportation Security Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Department of Homeland Security. Now to COVID funding. Senators still have not come to agreement on a final package of new COVID funding. Remember, to put this in context, the White House last month sent a request to the Congress for $30 billion in new COVID funding. They wanted that money added to the omnibus spending package for FY22. They dropped the number to $22.5 billion and then to $15 billion, but they still couldn't get it included in the omnibus because Republican senators had held firm that the money come from COVID funds that had been already appropriated but not yet spent. House Democrats balked at that source of funding. So they had to go back to square one. And since they were going back to the beginning anyway, Speaker Pelosi told the White House they should up the request to $45 billion, since that's how much she said they really needed anyway. No one listened to her. The Senate began a bipartisan search for funding sources that would meet the Republicans' demand that the money come from already appropriated funds. The Republicans gave the Democrats a list of various pots of money that totaled almost $100 billion and said the Democrats could take their pick. As the discussions continued, both sides agreed to drop about $5 billion meant for overseas vaccines, so the number they were looking to fund was down to just $10 billion. As of last weekend, though, they still had not come to agreement on where they would get that $10 billion from. Now, depending on who you talk to, they're either miles away from an agreement or it's time to get out the pens for the signing ceremony. If they come to agreement early enough in the week, this will move fast so they can get it to the president before they leave town for two weeks. Stay tuned on this one. Now to the Breyer replacement search. The Senate Judiciary Committee has already met this morning to consider the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to serve as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Given that the committee is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, that's a function of a 50-50 Senate, the nomination will not be forwarded to the floor of the Senate with a favorable recommendation. That will mean that the entire Senate will have to vote to discharge the nomination from the committee. And that's why we anticipate that the first vote of the week in the Senate will be a vote to discharge the nomination and put it on the floor. Last week, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins announced her intent to vote in favor of Judge Jackson's confirmation, giving President Biden and his White House what they so desperately wanted, a Republican vote to confirm her so they can call it a bipartisan confirmation. Lindsey Graham, who had voted to confirm Judge Jackson to her current seat on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, announced that he would vote against her. We had no word over the weekend, either from Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski or Utah Republican Mitt Romney. For the history buffs out there, the last Supreme Court nominee requiring a discharge motion occurred in 1853. Since 1789, the Senate has approved 120 Supreme Court nominations out of 164 that it has received. Just 12 have lost roll call votes on the floor, according to the Congressional Research Service. Now to illegal immigration and what I teased at the top of this broadcast. On Friday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that at the end of May, May 23rd to be, exact, to be specific, Title 42 would be lifted, leaving U.S. border officials no simple means to expel hundreds of thousands of migrants seeking entry into and asylum from the United States. 
According to official estimates, the authority has been used to remove migrants more than 1.7 million times. In its absence, there's no telling how many migrants will be allowed to enter the country and wait here for the asylum process to play out. But I can tell you this. Border authorities are telling people they are preparing to encounter as many as 18,000 migrants every single day. That would work out to six and a half million encounters per year. Even if the numbers turn out to be only half that bad, that would still smash all previous records. It takes about 15 minutes to process someone being sent back under Title 42. Processing a migrant under standard asylum procedures takes about 75 minutes, five times as long. In other words, we're about to turn our Border Patrol authorities into glorified clerks spending their time doing nothing but paperwork while illegal immigrants cross the border with impunity. Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney called the CDC announcement the worst domestic news of the day, and West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin called it frightening, before going on to say, quote, Title 42 has been an essential tool in combating the spread of COVID-19 and controlling the influx of migrants at our southern border. We are already facing an unprecedented increase in migrants this year, and that will only get worse if the administration ends the Title 42 policy. We are nowhere near prepared to deal with that influx. Other Senate Democrats, including Arizona's Mark Kelly and New Hampshire's Maggie Hassan, both of whom coincidentally happen to be in cycle this year, that is, they're up for re-election this year, also lambasted the policy change. And now you know why we're asking that as our call to action this week. Please call your congressman, whether Republican or Democrat, uh, and urge them to urge the Biden administration, keep Title 42, for goodness sake, don't get rid of Title 42. Now to the Biden budget. Where to begin on the Biden budget proposal? We talked briefly about this last week because it had finally been released uh, early Monday morning, and I hadn't had a chance to really get through it. I've now had time, and I will say this. Even in a Congress that is controlled by Democrats, this budget is dead on arrival. Joe, budget, Joe Biden wants to spend $5.8 trillion this fiscal year. That would represent about a 30% increase, a 30% larger baseline than the federal government spent in 2019, the last year before COVID arrived. He wants to make that the new normal. Over the next decade, he proposes to spend $72.7 trillion. The federal debt would grow from $30.2 trillion today to more than $44.8 trillion 10 years from now. Annual budget deficits would grow every single year from $1.2 trillion in FY23 to $1.8 trillion in FY32. But wait, it gets worse. These growing deficits I've just been talking about grow and grow despite the inclusion of a $2.5 trillion tax hike over the next decade. And as we discussed last week, a significant portion of that tax increase is based on the imposition of a tax on wealth, about which there are, let's just say, serious constitutional questions, and which has already been rejected by West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin. Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent. Do the math and you'll find out that's a 33 percent tax increase on the corporate rate. That would give the United States the highest corporate tax rate among the 38 nations in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And that's not good for our ability to be competitive in international markets. Buried in the budget document are the assumptions on which this budget are based, and they're no good either. 
How do I know? Because this budget is based on an assumption that inflation in 2022 and 2023 will average 2.3%. As I said, this budget was released last Monday morning. At 8.37 a.m. last Monday morning, the White House comm shop held a background briefing for selected reporters with all news embargoed until 11 a.m. At about 11.15 a.m., I got my hands on a transcript of that call. And I was stunned to see of the four questions from the pro-Biden reporters that were selected for the call, three of them zeroed right in on that inflation number. How in the world could the Biden budget proposal be based on an assertion that inflation would be no higher than 2.3%? Well, it turns out that the numbers were locked in November when we were already experiencing significant inflation, mind you, and they hadn't been updated since then. Even though this budget was presented 49 days after the legal deadline for presenting it to Congress. Yes, that's right. The law requires the president to submit his annual budget request to the Congress by the first Monday in February, which was precisely seven weeks before it was actually presented. An administration that ignores the law and won't update its own assumptions to take account of real-world experience is an administration that doesn't deserve to have its budget proposal taken seriously. Now to Hunter Biden's problems. We used to refer to this as Hunter Biden's emails, but the story has expanded, so from now on I'm calling it Hunter Biden's problems. On Wednesday of last week, the Washington Post followed the New York Times' story from two weeks ago with a blockbuster of its own based on, what else? Hunter Biden's emails. The Washington Post take on Hunter's foreign business dealings focused on his involvement with CEFC, the so-called capitalist arm of Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. According to documents found on the laptop, the Bidens received payments totaling $4.8 million from entities tied to the Chinese government. Now, here's the important part of the Washington Post effort. Just six paragraphs into what is a rather long takeout, we read this, quote, The Post did not find evidence that Joe Biden personally benefited from or knew details about the transactions with CEFC, which took place after he left the vice presidency and before he announced his intentions to run for the White House in 2020, end quote. In other words, this is all about Joe Biden's ne'er-do-well family members, his son and his brother, but it has nothing to do with the sitting president of the United States. Nothing to see here. These are not the droids you seek. Republicans on Capitol Hill are getting energized on the issue. We're now just seven months away from midterm elections, and they're very confident that they're going to be taking over the House in these elections. That means that come next January, they will wield the gavels, and with them they will control committee schedules and subpoena power. At a Tuesday oversight hearing of the House Judiciary Committee, Republicans asked the assistant director of the FBI's cyber division about Hunter's laptop. He repeatedly said he knew nothing. So Florida Republican Matt Gates requested to enter the contents of Hunter's laptop into the congressional record. Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler initially balked, but then later in the hearing, he allowed Gates to fulfill his request. Daryl Issa, Republican from California, is the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Intellectual Property and the Internet, which means he's in the catbird seat to lead an investigation into how big tech worked to suppress the New York Post's reporting about Hunter's laptop when that newspaper first broke the story back in October of 2020. To that end, Issa last week sent out document preservation notices to the White House, Facebook, Twitter, and members of the intelligence community, he said, were involved in the suppression of the story. 
quote, there's no question that big tech colluded with some of the nation's most powerful media and most influential Democrat partners, I'm sorry, partisans in the intelligence community to suppress the truth, censor fact-based journalism, and shelter the Biden family from political and legal scrutiny, he said. We will ensure that the truth is revealed and that those associated with corruption and collusion are held accountable, end quote. On Thursday of last week, the Federal Election Commission announced it had fined Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the Democratic National Committee a total of $113,000 over complaints that the two entities had improperly hidden payments to Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm that had created the so-called Steele dossier. The FEC determined that the Clinton campaign reported the $175,000 it spent on research for the dossier as legal services but a complaint filed against the campaign alleged the money should have been reported as opposition research done by Fusion GPS. The Clinton campaign and the DNC maintain that they agreed to pay the fines rather than contest the allegations. Now to the Iran nuclear deal. Weeks ago, we were told negotiators were so close to finalizing a deal to bring Iran back into compliance with the terms of that terrible 2015 nuclear deal that they had set up podiums for a signing ceremony. But then the Russians threw a monkey wrench into the works, demanding assurances from the United States that the sanctions we imposed on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine would not prevent Moscow from making tens of billions of dollars from the work it would perform for Iran under the terms of the deal. Assurances the Biden administration was apparently happy to give. Most recently, Iran's foreign minister declared that there was another deal-breaker demand. The deal, he said, would not go through unless the United States reversed the decision taken by the Trump administration in 2019 to declare the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps a foreign terrorist organization and delisted the IRGC. That decision had nothing to do with Iran's nuclear activities and everything to do with the IRGC's long history of killing Americans and supporting terrorist organizations that kill Americans. Last Tuesday, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted to approve the nomination of Barbara Leaf to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. She would be responsible for U.S. policy in the Middle East, including U.S. involvement with Iran. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz had a hold on her nomination through last year and most likely will continue to deny her a vote on the floor of the Senate. Meanwhile, Cruz has also introduced S-3857, that's S-3857, a bill that would terminate some of the Biden administration's waivers of sanctions previously imposed against Iran. Now, Senator Cruz is a member of the minority party in the Senate, so some might doubt whether he could even get a vote on his bill, let alone pass it. But those who say that are overlooking what he did just a few months ago when he demanded a vote on his amendment to reimpose sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline between Russia and Germany that were lifted by the Biden administration. He refused to drop his nomination holds until Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer relented and let Cruz have his vote. Now, finally, to Russia and Ukraine. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its sixth week, the Russian military focus appeared to shift as forces were transferred away from Kyiv in the north to the Donbass area in the east. As Russian forces withdrew from the suburbs around the capital city, they left evidence of atrocities in their wake. A mass grave holding 270 bodies was found in a place called Buka a town northwest of the nation's capital, and there appeared to be evidence that some innocent civilians at least had been bound with their hands tied behind their backs and then shot in the back of the head. 
Ukrainian President Zelensky said it was evidence that Russia was committing genocide. French President Macron denounced it. President Biden said he believes it is evidence that Russia committed war crimes. Quote, this guy is brutal and what's happening in Bucha is outrageous and everyone has seen it. He said, I think it is a war crime. I am seeking more sanctions, end quote. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said Monday, that is today, that the U.S. would work to have Russia suspended from the U.N. Human Rights Council as a result of its actions in Bucha. Support seems to be growing in the West for a new round of even tougher sanctions, but no one in Europe is yet saying it's time to stop accepting oil and natural gas from Russia. That would wreak havoc on European economies because they've allowed themselves to become too dependent on Russia as a source of their energy. In addition to tougher sanctions, there appears to be growing sentiment for better and more lethal weapons for Ukraine. When the war began, it seemed as if the West wanted to give Ukraine just enough weapons to allow the Ukrainians to prolong for a decent interval what everyone in the West assumed would be a Russian victory. But with the dismal performance of Russian armed forces combined with the valor of the Ukrainian forces, Opinion in Western capitals seems to be changing. There's now actually an argument going on that says Ukraine could win this war if they could get weapons of the right kind in large enough amounts to make a difference. Stay tuned.